Is wisdom better than folly? As we think about this question, I think on the outset it probably sounds like an easy question to answer. Of course, wisdom is better than folly. But as we've been studying through Ecclesiastes, we, we've seen the answers a little bit trickier than we thought. We've been seeing a need, the need that we have for true wisdom from God. A need in us to, to grow in wisdom that he's calling us to. But also there's a longing in this book. A longing for, for one who can actually be truly wise, who can always be faithful and who can deliver us from the folly that, that's inherent in our hearts. You see that it's better, but there's that, that recognition of need and longing. You see in our passage today, we're going to see that wisdom is better than folly, but it has limitations. It doesn't always make life easier. There's no guarantee that it's going to get you what you desire. That outcome that you think you might get, you may not get. There's not a formula that will ensure success under the sun, and yet we should pursue and practice wisdom because it's right. So brothers and sisters, let's ask the Lord to help us, not with, just with the desire, but the ability to see Christ and, and seek wisdom in him. Father, Lord, would you help us to be a people who love wisdom, but not because we just want to be smart and make good decisions, but that we would love wisdom because Jesus is true wisdom from God, that we would love Jesus and be transformed by him and therefore live in a way that's honoring to you, Lord. For true wisdom would be living in accordance with you and your plans and your purposes. Father, please help us to see places of folly. Please show us those so that we could confess and repent. Let us not be like the fool who continues to go back to it, but let us be free. Again, through the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord. I ask that you would lead us uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 today. Uh, starting in verse 13, we're going to work all the way through the end of chapter 10. And, you know, what better place to go to learn about wisdom than to hear from Solomon, you know, the king who is, who is typified, the one who has most wisdom among men besides Jesus. And so as we, as we read the words of Solomon today, we're going to, we're going to see a, a, a breakdown of this passage where wisdom is better than folly in four different ways, better than folly in war, in our work, in our words, and ultimately in leadership. Let's, let's hear the passage and then we'll talk through how it breaks down. So I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a fool, of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. 
folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking around on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one succeed. If the serpent bites before its charm, there's no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Though sloth, through sloth the the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. So as we we begin to dive into this passage, we're going to see that wisdom is better than folly in war. And the first thing that, that Solomon kind of highlights for us is he, he sets the stage almost like a, a movie scene, you know, where there's this small city and it's probably surrounded by a wall and there's a few people that live in the city and a great king comes against the people of that town. They bring their warriors and they bring those instruments of war, their siege works to come up alongside the city and ultimately to try to destroy them. You know, you picture any scene from various movies that that this is similar to. But instead of a movie, Solomon seems to be telling us that this is something that actually happened. It's something that he saw. There's this poor wise man who comes up with a solution that is able to deliver the city from the king's clutches. Even though the defenders of the city, they were vastly outnumbered, they were outgunned or outsorted. I don't know what you would say there. Uh, Though they didn't seem uh, to have even the slightest chance at victory The city had a wise man in it, and the people were delivered. How comforting to know that battles aren't always won by the strong. Just think about your own life. How often do we experience weakness in our battle against sin? Because frankly, you might be thinking about your own life and saying, you know, I, I don't have a lot of experience in war, but I would say that the scriptures tell us that every one of us is fighting a war against sin and the flesh. And the good news of the gospel is that we have one who, though he appeared weak, and though he was despised by men, he actually was able to perfectly deliver us. And his power is available to those who believe to be able to fight against whatever foes come against us. So though they might appear strong, ultimately they are defeated by his power. So in this story, the king is defeated and the, and the people are spared And Solomon doesn't tell us, you know, what the circumstances were that happened. It would be really interesting to find out what his plan was or how that happened. But the wise words of this man led to a massive victory for this town. But Solomon ends verse 15 in a way that you probably wouldn't expect. He says that though the words of this man delivered the people, no one remembered him. This is not the way that it should go. 
You know, we would expect that someone who famously saves a city from such overwhelming odds, we would think that they would be remembered forever, right? Statues would be erected in their name. Children would be named after this person. Wisdom would honor and remember what God has done, and yet the fool forgets. Once the pressure is off, they return to the things that they used to do daily before without remembering the lessons that were taught. It's very similar, at least in my mind, to the book of uh, Judges, where over and over the people would fall into wickedness and God would bring judgment and they would call out for a deliverer. And God would provide the deliverer. And after that happened, they would fall back into those same patterns of sin and temptation, forgetting the Lord. Solomon tells us that not only was this man not remembered, even worse than that, he was despised and his words were not heard. In some bizarre twist, the people who are delivered despise their deliverer. Fast forward a thousand years or so, and that's going to be repeated again. For many of the people that were the deliverer was sent to hate him, despise him, spit and mock him, and crucify him. Through this man's, though this man's wisdom was greater than the might of the advancing king, and though his words heard in quiet are much wiser than the loud commandments of the rich ruler among the fools, like verse 17 says, and though this man's wisdom was better than all of the weapons of war that were coming against the city, verse 18, no one honored or remembered him, it says. How can this be? Brothers and sisters, if we are to be wise, we need to listen to the wise counsel of others. This is what verses 17 and 18 is encouraging us toward, to listen to the counsel of wisdom. For wisdom is better when it's listened to. It has no use if it's not. When advice is heeded, when the words are taken to heart, it leads to good in us and in others. And so as you think about your own life for a second, as you place yourself in this story, or you just think about how it might apply to you, where are the places that we act like the fool and forget God's deliverance for us? Where are the places where God has brought mighty freedom in certain places and yet, you know, the day after or the weeks after we forget what he's done? Have you grown so accustomed to God's grace and favor that you no longer recognize his goodness to you? It seems normal and mundane. Have you ever hated the voice of one giving counsel to you? You know, someone comes to you in love to encourage you and you totally reject it. But you maybe look back and you say, I think their words were right and were for my good. Why did you reject their words if that was you? You know, what was it that, that blinded you to, to, to your sin or kept you from wanting to hear what they had to say? What sin calluses our hearts from recognizing the truth or wanting to hear it? Is it pride? Is it, is it fear? Maybe, maybe like self-sufficiency? Any number of things might might lead us along a similar path there. But Solomon wants us to recognize that wisdom is better than folly in war. As we fight a battle, particularly Christians, as we fight a battle against sin, we need wisdom from the Lord to be able to be faithful. But he goes on to show us in verses 18, at the second second part of 18 and into chapter 10, verse 1, that there's an outsized effect that folly can have even though you may have a lot of wisdom. There's a, there's big consequences that can come about even with a little bit of folly. And I don't know if you remember back to January 28th, 1986. Some of you probably weren't even alive then. Many of you were. But there was a a space shuttle launch that day. The space shuttle was called the Challenger. 
And I can remember on TV this day, like over and over and over, they kept showing the same footage. You know, 73 seconds after launch, the space shuttle explodes. And all seven people inside of it are killed. And it was on a loop the whole day. And as you think about that space shuttle and you think about all of the, the technology and, and, and things that are, that, are, that are in it to get a person into space, you know, it's tons and tons of, of advanced technology. The thing that caused the shuttle to explode was one of the most normal, mundane pieces of the whole thing. It was an O-ring in the, in the fuel canister. They hadn't tested it at the temperatures that they launched at that morning, and so it became brittle. It allowed gases to leak out, and ultimately, they exploded. You know, a, a small bit of folly led to an outsized, destructive effort. And so Solomon tells us that wisdom is better than folly, but folly can have outsized effects in our lives. You know, one of the maddening things about sin and folly is that it can do undo much good that comes before it. Verse, those two verses we talked about, verse 18 and verse 1 of chapter 10, highlight this reality. Where one sinner is intent to do harm, they can destroy much good. You, know, you can think about a spy or a saboteur, one who infiltrates a building. You know, maybe they put a bomb inside of it and blow people up that way. Or maybe they go in and they break in and steal secrets from the government or from their company. And they sell them to another agency who wants to use that to inflict harm on other people. That can have devastating consequences for people. But it's not just bombs and saboteurs that we need to worry about. This can also happen at a much more personal level too. Right? Just think about, think about the corrosive effects of gossip and slander. Do they not also have the ability to destroy much good? Solomon is warning us here to be on guard against attacks such as these, both outside the church and inside the church, because they can do great damage. And this is why, this is why church discipline is so important in the church too. It helps to correct a person so that it would not continue in sin, but also it helps to protect the flock of God from those who would be intent to do harm to others. And so Solomon tells us that we need to be on guard against these kinds of folly because of the effects that can come about. But he also says in this same section that there's a, there's a need for us to persevere in wisdom, to continue on, to don't just start well, but not end well. It needs to continue and carry on. It's not enough just to be wise most of the time because a little bit of folly outweighs wisdom and honor. His point is that a little bit of folly mixed into a whole bunch of wisdom Ruins the whole batch. I mean, just think about cookies. You know, you've got delicious ones, but they fall on the ground. Do you want to eat those? What if they fall on something worse than what's on your ground, right? Probably not. You don't want to eat them. Solomon makes it plain that though a person may do much good throughout their lives, all of that can come crashing down by their embrace of folly and foolishness. I mean, just think about the example of marriage. Say someone's married, and you would describe it as faithfully for 50 years. You know, 50 years of faithful marriage to one another. You know, maybe they win father and mother of the year or whatever, every year. But then one year after 50 years, one of the, the spouses commits adultery against the other one. Right? And while we would say that redemption is certainly possible, does not this one act of infidelity taint and devalue 50 years of faithfulness? 
Or say you were, you know, father and mother of the year, 364 days of the year. But on that one day of the year, not that, you, you go off and do the same thing. Right? It, it doesn't make any sense. A little bit of folly ruins that whole batch. And if I say the names Bill Clinton or Richard Nixon, what comes to mind? It's probably not their decades of service in the government where they were passing bills and legislation and all that stuff. It's the scandal, is it not, that comes to mind. And so Solomon wants us to recognize that, that a little bit of, of folly and sin can have tremendous effects throughout all of us. And he goes on and he shows this through the example of work. And so while he's trying to help us to understand that wisdom is better than folly and work, he also shows us that there's some things that if they're, if they're left there unchecked, they can, they can cause you harm. They can injure you. You can be hurt badly. And so if we look um, to verses 8 through 11, and in particular here at the beginning, 8 through 9, we're going to see that Solomon's talking about foolishness in a way that's, that's more akin to carelessness here in, in the first two verses. Not being aware, not, being, not thinking about what you're doing in your surroundings. In these verses, Solomon carries the theme from verse 1 and helps us to see that even a little bit of folly can have terrible consequences for a person. And he uses four different examples. He says you've got a, a trapper who digs out a pit, and unfortunately they fall into the pit that they set for the animal because they weren't paying attention. Or you've got um, a person that's uh, a contractor, and he knocks down a wall to clear out space maybe for a bigger room. And he's remodeling a bathroom or something. But there's a snake inside the wall, and so it comes out and it, and it attaches him. It attacks him. He doesn't know it's there, and it, it hits him. Or you've got a woodcutter or a, a, you know, a, a stone carver, and they're injured by their work as well. Maybe their back goes out or the wood hits them. Any number of things can happen. The reality for people in these lines of work is that they've probably done these tasks hundreds, if not thousands of times. They've done them numerous times. They have experience and wisdom in this trade, it all resides within them, but yet in a moment, tragedy can strike. In a moment, what looked like something good ends up turning to be something bad. Just two years ago, we were on a mission trip with our high school group in Denham Springs, Louisiana. It was the last week of this project. We had been there, uh, they had been there for two years, and this was the last week when we went. They were wrapping up everything. And there was a project leader named Ryan who was working on the project with us. He had been you know, part of and overseeing all of the projects for those two years, and there were multiple ones per week. On the very last week, his hand goes into the saw, and he cuts four of his fingers. Thankfully, they didn't get cut off. He was pretty seriously injured, though, for a while. But just a moment of not paying attention, not being careful, not being aware led him to, to being injured. And it, and it, wasn't, it wasn't intentional. He wasn't trying to, to go after folly, but it happened. And so it's similar to what Solomon's saying, just a little bit, has an outsized influence. And in verses 10 through 11, Solomon shifts gears a little bit, and he shows us that preparation and planning are important for us in our work. It's important that to avoid some of these dangers, we should prepare and plan. Again, it doesn't always lead to the outcomes that we want because it's proverbial literature. He's saying these are generally true. These things generally happen. But generally, it's a good idea when you're going to chop down a tree to sharpen your axe, right? You don't want to just take a blunt, you know, rock or an axe and just start banging on a tree. You're going to be there all day. Or if you take a moment and sharpen it, strengthen it, you're able to cut through it very quickly and be very efficient. Or a snake charmer, if, if your desire is to grab a snake, if it's a venomous snake in particular, 
you probably shouldn't stick your hand down on it unless you know that it's, you know, charmed or ready to be grabbed. Maybe you uh, give it some medicine and knocks it out. But you don't want to just, you know, let it grab onto you. And yet, that's what this person does. Instead of preparing, they try to reach out and they, and they get struck. So he's saying in verse 10, wisdom helps one succeed. Preparation will help you not get injured. But as he continues in verse 15, he continues that same idea about preparation. He says, there's a fool that could work all day long. They could actually, you know, harvest the whole field or they could, you know, have some kind of product that they're going to sell. They've, they've got it all together. And yet they don't know where the city is. So they have a product, but they don't know where to take it uh, to sell it and deliver it. That would be a problem. Or in verse 18, another problem in our work is that we could be lazy. And so there might be an awareness of a problem, but a lack of action to address that problem. And he uses the example of a roof leaking. And he says that instead of patching a hole or, or fixing the roof that might take a couple of hours or you know, maybe at most a couple of days, somebody just lets it go day by day. Week by week, month by month, year by year, and eventually the roof caves in. You know, they're unwilling to address the issue. They're, they're lax in their work, and then everything gets ruined. Again, this is an echo of the, the exhortation from verse 1, where just as a fly ruins ointment, a hole in a roof can be devastating if not dealt with. Just think about that, that slow drip, drip, drip. What if it's in your walls? You know, what if it's hitting down on the foundation? What's going to be growing in there? What's going to be undermined and, and ultimately worn out because of it? A little bit of folly can have an outsized consequence. And so I want you to think again about your own life for a second. Is there something that you've left undone or ignored, you know, that wisdom would have you take care, take care of now before a problem arises, before it continues to fester? Is there something that, that you're putting off that should be taken care of today? How often do we actually walk past the issue instead of dealing with it like a proverbial sock on the floor? At least at my house, there's socks on the floor for my children. They could be something practical like, you know, finishing a project, you know, doing a task. But it could also be, you know, something relational. You know, is there something that, that needs to be said now that could help heal a hurt place? Or to, or to keep bitterness from creeping in in your life or in someone else's life? Or, or do, you, do you need to confess something to your wife or, or to a friend, to a parent? You know, something that, that you would confess to repair a breach in that relationship so that it would not continue. And as you think about your own life too, what are some areas of your life where you just feel frustrated with your progress because you keep using those same blunt tools over and over and over, making no progress? And maybe you're trying to communicate wisdom with your kids and you keep doing it in the same way and you keep getting the same results. Does your approach need to change? Or maybe you're having a conversation with your spouse about a, con a continued, you know, particular topic. You keep coming back to the same topic and it ends with coldness and frustration again. What needs to change about your communication? What needs to change about the tools that you're using so that something good would come out of it? You need to think about this as well. So wisdom is better than folly in our work. And he goes on to say that it's even better in our words as well. Not just in our wars and not just in our work, but in our words. 
Solomon tells us in verse 12 that the words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. In this passage, he says that wise words help a person find favor with the, he, with the hearer. These good words lead themselves usually to, to think of that person to have honor and respect, you know, the one who spoke them. But as we've already heard in 917, this is not always the case. The words of a wise man can be despised and they can be hated even though they're good. And though the outcome isn't certain on how people will respond, wise words are always better than foolish ones. And words have a way of revealing what's going on inside of us, don't they? Like an indicator light on your car, it reveals something that's going on under the hood. But indicator lights usually show something bad where our words could also show something that was good going in the heart as well. Or it could show both of these things. There's times when our words almost seem to leap out of our mouths on our own, flowing out, as it were, like a river from their source. Solomon highlights for us the reality that wise speech flows out of wise hearts and foolish speech flows out of foolish hearts. And the outcome of foolish speech is anything but good. There's a, there's a passage in Matthew 12 where it talks a lot about the heart and communication that flows out of it. Matthew 12, 33 through 35 uh, says this, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. This is Jesus speaking. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. He's trying to, to illustrate that, that our speech should be an indicator of what's going on inside. And so he says the words of the fools, they consume them. They're swallowed up by their, their boastings. They're, they're becoming useless. Not only do they start in foolishness, but it actually says that they end in evil. Instead of controlling their mouths, this person is controlled by their mouths, the fool. So I want you to think about, when was the last time that you spoke without thinking and you began to regret it immediately? You know, maybe you keyboard warrior style, threw out a big email and sent it off to the internet or to a friend or someone that you were frustrated with. Did that also lead you to repentance? Or did you just try to bury it away? You had the feeling of regret, but you maybe didn't even do anything with it. James tells us in James 3, 5 through 6, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set afire, set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. The tongue can have an outsized influence over our body. And so where wise words point us to truth, the fool's words incline them toward the wrong path, toward self, toward evil, away from the Lord. Fools rush out with lots of bluster like, like verse 4 alludes to, while the wise remain calm and stay in their place. Fools boast, but they don't know the future. 
as verse 14 says. The words of the fool, they don't endure. But the words that we speak, if we know Christ and we are attempting to be faithful to the Lord, the words that we speak, when they are the words that come from the Lord, they endure because they reflect things that are true and right. True words of wisdom reflect the one who is ultimately wise. They correspond with reality as it really is, and they they point to an eternal hope that we have in the Son of God. They will not fail. Words of wisdom that reflect God because He will not fail. And they're true because they're a reflection of the one who is actually true Himself. And then Solomon tells us in verse 20, he says that the fool does not control what he says about other people. He warns his hearers not to even think thoughts that would curse the king, not to even speak words of cursing about them in your own bedroom because those words have a way of getting back to the king or to getting back to other people. You know, in a, in a courtroom, there's a, there's a job of a transcriber, and the transcriber's job is to type all of the things that are said in the courtroom. So I want you to imagine for a day there was a courtroom stenographer that was following you around, right? Typing up everything that you said, every word that came out of your mouth that day. I want you to think about your speech for a minute. Think about the speech that you might have had, you know, that they transcribed about your coworkers that would go on normally, or maybe your boss. Or what about people in cars as you're driving down the road, maybe to church or just, you know, down the interstate after work or before? What are the words that would be coming out of your mouth about your principals or your teachers? Sometimes your teacher's your mom, so then it's, you've got an even more conundrum because it's your mom teacher, right? But also, what about your siblings and your parents? What would, what would that transcriptionist write down that you said about them? Or maybe fellow people at the church. You see, Solomon's speaking very practically here. But there's, there is a very real sense in which we need to heed his warning. Because every loose word that comes out of our mouths will be judged by God himself. Matthew 12, 36 through 37, possibly one of the most frightening passages in all the Bible, says, But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they've spoken. For by your words you will, have, you will be acquitted, And by your words, you'll be condemned. Right after Jesus was saying, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, he says these words. And I bet as we evaluate our own speeches we're thinking about right now, we'd say there's a mixed bag, right? We bless people at times and then we curse them at others. But how is it that we would train our hearts so that what comes out is good and right? How do we train our hearts so that the overflow that comes out is blessing and not cursing? That our speech is seasoned with salt, not, not bitterness and wrath. You see, we recognize quickly, I think, that we need hearts that are transformed, not just a change in speech patterns, especially since God's standard is perfection. This would be terrible news if not for the Father sending his son Jesus to purify and save us. The Father sent His Son, the one who is perfectly able to both speak and think in ways that are always pleasing to God. The Father sends His Son to cover us by His blood, to transform our cold, dead, angry, evil hearts. 
to have hearts that are reflective of his. You see, we certainly aren't acquitted by the goodness of our words, but by the good confession that we make about the Son of God we are. He is the one who sanctifies us by his blood. He is the one who justifies us by his atoning death and makes us righteous and covers all of our folly by his blood. Verses two through three in our section shows us a, a divergent path, a path to the right and a path to the left. It says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And this is not like a political commentary about right and left. But he is saying in biblical times, there was the idea that to the right was the correct way to go. And to the left was the way of sin and folly and death and destruction. And so he says, a wise man's heart inclines him on the right path. But a fool's heart inclines him to the left, so much so that even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense and he says to everyone that he is a fool, whether he knows it or not. So we need hearts that incline us to the right. But apart from Christ, we would all be on that left path. We all were sinners, angry, haters of God. And yet by the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus, he transforms us to be sons and daughters, to have new hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26. This is a promise of God in the Old Testament fulfilled by Christ. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Praise God. He's done this. Every believer in here, brothers and sisters, has what we need for life and godliness. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, enabling us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so I think an encouragement would be don't wait do it now depending upon the Spirit. Attempt to be faithful in our work and in our words, in the warfare that we fight, and even in our leadership. Fourth area that we see is wisdom is better than folly in our leadership. See, this is the, the last major area that he, he brings to mind. And he says wise leaders will heed words of wisdom when they hear them. You know, like the leaders of that small city when they heard the, the poor man Tell them what they should do. They did it. They listened and were spared. Good leaders will take good counsel and they will act on it. But there is a problem when leadership is lacking or, or leaders are pursuing folly. We heard again in 18 and in verse 1 of chapter 10, there can be devastating consequences for, for times when leaders are committed to doing evil or pursuing foolishness. One of the things that's up, upended by poor leadership is, is the structure of our society, right? We see this all around us today where people give uh, affirmation and say things are good, which God himself says are evil and wicked and not to be pursued. The folly of leaders has a way of turning things upside down, but not in a good way. Verses five through seven, we hear this. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking around on the ground like slaves. And as, you know, to our modern ears, as we hear this, at first doesn't really sound like a bad thing, does it? You know, we, we might think that these rulers are getting what they deserve. It's good that the rulers are brought down, you know, like normal people. And in fact, we want the low raised up. 
You know, this sort of rebellion is at the heart of a people who long to be free of authority, is it not? But Solomon isn't debating whether we should be, there should be kings or servants. He's not saying, is it good that there's kings and is it good that there's servants in a land? But instead, he's lamenting the poor leadership that would lead to a king who cannot lead and who does not have the resources to be able to take adequate care of his people. It's like a father who's not taking seriously his responsibility to lead in their family. This is not the way it ought to be. This is what he's saying. And if you think about your own life, where is it that you might be called to be a leader? Whether by God or by by others, ultimately it would be from God. Where are you called to be a leader and you don't want to lead? where, Where is it that you avoid the leadership that he might be calling you to do? Why is that? What is it in you that that rejects what God might be calling you to do? Especially in fathers, it's so important that fathers would lead in families in ways that are good. But we don't have to just stay in the realm of family. Maybe you think about it in in just realms of of business or construction. You know, imagine a firm was hired to to build a bridge, right? And so on the work site, they've got architects, they've got, you know, steel workers, and they have whatever other people you would have on that job, right? And so... A couple days into the project, they're going to say, okay, we're going, to, we're going to change it up a little bit today. Architects, you're going to be installing the steel structures. Steel workers, draw up the plans, right? And so they switch it up and they, they start doing the job. How do you think the construction of that bridge is going to go? Like, would you, would you want to drive across that bridge with your family in a car? Eli says, yes, I don't want to ride with Eli. <laughs> you probably don't want to drive on that bridge, right? Because the people with the, the knowledge and expertise aren't fulfilling the roles that, that they, you know, have. They're, 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 they're instead in, in other places. And so that's a problem, Solomon says. But he also goes on to say in verses 16 through 17 that it's terrible for a people when the king is a child. And he doesn't just mean when they're young, though it could be that, but also when the king is immature like a child, when he's not wise, when he's not strong. Because those who are alongside him, his, his uh, counselors, instead are taking advantage of the situation. They're forsaking their responsibilities. They're eating and drinking in the morning and getting drunk in the morning. Why? Because they're gluttonous for food and drink, and they want things for their own benefit. Solomon says, instead, it's better when the, when the king is a wise man, a man of honor, and his servants feast at the proper time. It's better when they are wise and eat for strength rather than for themselves. It's better for them to be able to lead people. And in verse 19, he tells us of the goodness of food and drink and money. But these things must be pursued at the proper time and in the proper way. To love them in and of themselves is foolishness and it leads to idolatry. But when they're taken with thankful hearts, it says that they lead to joy and laughter and life. And so his point here is wisdom is better than folly in leaders because it's, it leads to the flourishing of the people. You know, just I want you to think about how have you been blessed by strong leadership in your life and in your family and work and, you know, scouts or wherever. How have you been blessed by it? How have you been encouraged and strengthened by those who have led you with wisdom and integrity and for your good? And then if you turn it around and you think about it from the other direction... How have your own failures of leadership created in you a longing for a true and faithful king? 
for one who doesn't fail, who isn't weak, who doesn't get tired, who doesn't lie, who doesn't hurt his own people. So the the weakness in us can highlight the need and that desire, that longing for a tree king, one who would come and satisfy all the things in which we fail, both in wisdom and in faithfulness to do what he calls us to do. So brothers and sisters, as we think about all that Solomon is saying about how wisdom is better than falling, again, we recognize there's this need in the passage and longing that's highlighted, a need for true wisdom and a longing for one who can actually do the things that he calls us to do. Why is wisdom better than folly? Ultimately, it's better because true wisdom leads to blessing and folly leads to death ultimately. That will happen one day. Those who reject the king will suffer wrath, though on this earth it may not appear that way. And those who place their faith in Christ will ultimately be delivered once and for all. The pursuit of wisdom leads us to the one place where true wisdom is found. It leads us to the Lord himself. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2.3 that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything that we need to know about the Father, everything we need to know about wisdom and, and faithfulness is revealed to us by his Son. He doesn't just have wisdom in and of himself, but he is wisdom personified. And brothers and sisters, we can't be content to just seek wisdom apart from the Lord and think that's what Solomon's calling us to do. He's not saying that. He's not saying just seek out worldly wisdom. He says, no, find wisdom in him, the one who can fulfill it. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Jesus is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. And this is the wisdom that Solomon ultimately is pointing us toward his closing exhortation in the book of Ecclesiastes is to fear God and to keep his commandments because God will bring everything into judgment. The fear of the Lord is this beginning place of wisdom, Proverbs 1, 7. And as we close and think about one last idea, I want to leave you with this. As verse 10, 1 says, a little bit of folly outweighs wisdom and honor. That sounds pretty awful, Right? we think about the effects of sin in our lives and the effects of others. You know, one sin led to the fall and condemnation of all mankind. And all of us have sinned, a whole host of sin. In Romans 5, verse 18, we hear about Jesus, the one who is able to undo uh, those effects of the fall. By his perfect sacrifice, he is able to redeem and restore those who have been brought low by sin, those who have been uh, hurt and destroyed and made enemies because of their sin. It says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So as folly leads to an outsized amount of pain, the wisdom of God leads to eternal blessing 
to all who would believe. It covers us completely of our sin and makes us righteous. Praise be to the Lord, our true wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for both exposing sin in us and encouraging us toward the truth. God, would you please help us now to sing and respond in ways that would be right and good and holy. Lord, would you let us sing uh, from our hearts, let it be the overflow of our heart that words would come out, that would be words of praise and joy and adoration, that that would demonstrate what is true in us. Let us sing in a way that would be pleasing to you, God, and lead us to respond as you see fit. Thank you, Lord. Lord, lead us in wisdom, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.